Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Super Tuesday Meets Ash Wednesday, First Sunday in Lent, 2008, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 10, 2008. I don't think of myself as a political junkie, but I sure have wasted a lot of time following the presidential campaigns. I'll read the same stories on several internet websites. I'll glance at a newspaper when I walk to the gym. On the treadmill, I'll squint at the silent televisions as the same stories scroll across the bottoms of their flat screens. And then at night, I hate to admit this, I'll sometimes eat dinner in front of television and watch the same stories for what? The sixth or seventh time? I must be an advertiser's dream. And so, a coincidence of the calendar caught my attention. This week, Mardi Gras and so-called Super Tuesday both fall on February 5th. While millions of revelers from Rio to New Orleans will indulge in raucous parties, tens of millions of Americans will chase the holy grail of politics when some 22 states have their primary presidential campaigns. But every night has a morning, and in the Christian calendar, Ash Wednesday follows Super Tuesday. Just as Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, and Jesus spent 40 days in the desert fasting, praying, and battling Satan, Matthew chapter 4, 1 and 2, since the 4th century, Christians have set aside the 40 days before Easter as a time for repentance, reflection, and self-examination. Ash Wednesday gets its name from the liturgical rite of dabbing ashes on the forehead of worshipers. The ashes remind us of our mortality. In words that are often read at Lent, God spoke to Adam in Genesis chapter 3 verse 19, For dust you are, and to dust you will return. In the Bible, ashes are also a symbol of mourning a stark metaphor that even Jesus invokes in Matthew chapter 11, verse 21. Ashes also signify an inner attitude of repentance, humiliation, self-denial, and abstinence. In addition to ashes, some Christians will give up meat, chocolate, or alcohol for the 40 days of Lent. Other people fast, Still others perform acts of mercy or contrition. In a culture that glorifies excess and indulgence, hubris and bravado, Wednesday's ashes signify an outrageously countercultural act of humility. Lent strikes me as one of the most brutally realistic liturgical seasons of the whole year. Creativity and imagination can broaden our Lenten disciplines. I once read about a scholar whose spiritual advisor urged him to give up reading. As this scholar told the story, that was the perfect prescription for him 
and his addiction to books, reading, and ideas. Or again, it's easy to imagine an asceticism of time in which we put aside our own to-do lists in order to place the interests of others before our own. And so I wonder, could I renounce politics for a mere 40 days? That would be an eminently Christian idea, with eminently Christian reasons to do so. In the Gospel this week, the glory of all the kingdoms of the world which Jesus is offered is nothing less than a satanic temptation. It's no coincidence that when Satan tempted him with political power, he demanded that Jesus bow down and worship. Matthew chapter 4, 8 and 9. In our day and age, politics are a type of worship that demand deep sacrifices, unquestioning obedience, and unwavering allegiance from its adherents. But Jesus never took the bait. Far from it, throughout his life, Jesus challenged the political status quo with a subversive alternative. When Jesus was born, Mary announced that God would, quote, bring down rulers from their thrones, Luke 1.52, which is why the Guatemalan government once banned the public reading of Mary's Magnificat. His first words proclaimed a new and different type of kingdom, reign, or rule in Mark chapter 115. In one of the most dramatic encounters in all of Scripture, at the end of his life when Pontius Pilate interrogated Jesus, he pressed three charges of political sedition in Luke chapter 23, 1 and 2. We found this fellow subverting the nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And back outside, the mom hounded Pilate. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. They got that right. No friend of Caesar. That phrase characterizes the earliest Christians. Last Sunday in church, a friend gave me a book called The Christians as the Romans Saw Them by Robert Louis Wilkin, a University of Virginia historian. I couldn't put the book down. Wilkin describes a time when Christians held a deeply ambivalent attitude toward political power in the state. And the suspicions were mutual. He also shows how the pronounced antipathy that the cultured elites of Rome harbored towards Christians grew and grew. For about a hundred years after Jesus, says Wilkins, Christians were invisible to most people in the Roman Empire. But across the decades they developed a reputation as an antisocial community that existed on the margins of the state. In explaining why Nero persecuted Christians so mercilessly, the Roman historian Tacitus, for example, called them, quote, haters of mankind, end quote. People viewed them as fanatical, seditious, obstinate, and defiant. Another early critic complained, quote, you do not go to our shows. 
You take no part in our processions. You are not present at our public banquets, and you shrink in horror from our sacred games. End quote. The early believers repudiated long-held Roman religious traditions. They refused military service, which is to say that they refused to protect the state. Their indifference to civic affairs seemed to undermine society. How could they be trustworthy citizens, people asked. The Christians, another critic summarized, quote, do not understand their civic duty, end quote. The alternative community that Jesus announced and embodied is what life would be like on earth, here and now, if God were king and the rulers of this world were not. Imagine if God ruled the nations instead of Bush, Sarkozy, Musharraf, Putin, Kim Jong-il, or Ahmadinejad. Every act of personal and communal life would experience a radical reversal. The political, economic, and social subversions would be almost endless. Peacemaking instead of warmongering. Liberation, not exploitation. Sacrifice rather than subjugation. Mercy, not vengeance. Care for the vulnerable instead of privileges for the powerful. Generosity instead of greed. Truth instead of propagandistic lies. Humility rather than hubris. And embrace rather than exclusion. The ancient Hebrews had a marvelous world for this. Shalom, or human well-being. About 20 years ago, a professor of mine who had renounced his political activism explained that the most politically subversive thing that he could do was to pray. For the longest time, I wondered what he meant, but then the light went off. The Lord's Prayer, in fact, might be the most radical of all political manifestos. Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. People who live and pray like that have an agenda that's different than Caesar's. They're no friend of Caesar's. Whether Republican or Democrat, whether capitalist, socialist, or communist, whether democratic or theocratic. With Super Bowl Sunday, Mardi Gras, and Super Tuesday now in the rearview mirror, Ash Wednesday and the beginning of Lent offer Christians an opportunity to think about politics in all of life in a radically different light. For further reflections and for Lenten reading, I would recommend the book by Stanley Hauerwas, Cross-Shattered Christ, Meditations on the Seven Last Words. Grand Rapids, Brazos, 2004, 108 pages. For books this week, I review a commentary by Peter Leithart, 
1st and 2nd Kings, the Brazos Theological Commentary on the Bible, Grand Rapids, Brazos Press, 2006, 304 pages. Peter Leithart's study of 1st and 2nd Kings is the third installment in Brazos's projected 40-volume series of theological commentaries on the Bible. Yaroslav Pelikan led the series with a masterful study of the book of Acts in 2005. Matthew Levering explored Ezra and Nehemiah in 2007. And Stanley Howarus of Duke University also tackled the Gospel of Matthew in 2007. With a PhD from Cambridge and extensive pastoral experience at Trinity Reformed Church in Idaho, Peter Leithart made me feel like I was enjoying the best of academic scholarship, linguistic analysis, literary insights, historical reflections, and thoughtful applications to contemporary Christian discipleship. First and Second Kings begins with Solomon's ascension to power and ends with Judah's banishment to Babylon which means that Leithart makes a panoramic sweep of roughly 400 years of salvation history in Israel. For him, this story of the politics of God and the politics of humanity is not merely historical, prophetic, or sapiential, that is, a type of wisdom literature, which it is, but rather and especially it's a gospel text that has practical applications to our church life today. There's the inseparable interplay between a king's private life and his public office. Idolatry looms large in these stories, especially the gun, gold, and girls of Solomon. The partition of Israel and Judah is redolent with applications for post-Reformation divisions in the church and the nature of genuine ecumenicity. There's the prominent role of outsiders, like the Gentile Naaman, among the insider Israel. The providence of God over the history of humanity is also a major theme in this court history of the kings of Israel. Guiding Leithart's interpretation of Israel's history is his strongly and unapologetically reformed doctrine of God. Yahweh, he says, is no great marshmallow in the sky. He's not a god who plays softball, nor is he the god of the philosophers, a gorgeous but impotent force in heaven. He is the warrior who fights to win, and deception is part of his holy war. Page 164. He's a god, says Leithart, of enmity and enemies, of violence and vengeance and not merely by way of accommodation to human sinfulness or passive permission in the divine will. In contrast to Walter Wink, for example, Leithart endorses violence as not only a necessary evil, but as, in fact, a redemptive and positive good. He wants to avoid what he calls any Marcionite or Anabaptist tendency toward a disconnection between the Old and New Testaments, that would privilege the Jesus story over the blood and gore of first and second kings. He repeatedly insists that God is not arbitrary, 
but instead a God of boundless love and grace. But I found that combination a hard sell, and I suspect that other readers might also. Why not read First and Second Kings as understandably and necessarily primitive stories? Why elevate historical description to theological prescription? In the end, in Leithart's interpretation, Yahweh is what he calls, quote-unquote, boundary transgressing. He is, in fact, in Leithart's interpretation, a god of surprises in more ways than one. Peter Leithart, 1st and 2nd Kings, the Brazos Theological Commentary on the Bible. For film this week, I review The Simpsons Movie from 2007. After 18 years as one of television's most successful shows, devotees of Springfield's endearingly dysfunctional family will love this 90 commercial-free minutes of biting social satire. Or, as the DV case explains the PG-13 rating, the irreverent humor throughout. Indeed. And best of all, no one, no one at all, gets a free pass. Not politics, religion, the media, environmentalist, entertainment, or even gays. In fact, there's even a plot in this movie. When Homer Simpson pollutes all of Springfield by dumping a silo of pig manure into the lake, his family escapes to start life over in Alaska. Later, Homer returns to rescue the town from the ominous and incompetent federal agents. He's the anti-hero as hero. Along the way, he falls out of favor with Marge and his family, but then he falls back in love with them all. Others might wonder what's the fuss and echo Homer's self-parody in the beginning of the film. Why would anyone pay to see a movie of something they could watch on television for free? Well, I definitely count myself in the former group and was happy to pay to watch a favorite family do more of the same. The Simpsons movie from 2007. And finally, for poetry, we continue our Lenten series by George Herbert. George Herbert lived from 1593 to 1633. The title of his poem this week is called The Agony. Philosophers have measured mountains, fathomed the depths of seas, of states, and kings, walked with a staff to heaven and traced fountains. But there were two vast, spacious things, the which to measure it doth more behove, yet few there are that sound them, sin and love. Who would know sin, let him repair unto Mount Olivet. There shall he see a man so wrung with pains, that all his hair, his skin, his garments bloody be. Sin is that press and vice which forceth pain to hunt his cruel food through every vein. 
who knows not love, let him assay and taste that juice, which on the cross a pike did set a broach. Then let him say, if ever he did taste the like, Love in that liquor sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. George Herbert, The Agony. And thank you for joining us for the first Sunday in Lent. Sunday, February 10th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.